Welcome to the Cloud Pod, where the forecast is always cloudy. We talk weekly about all things AWS, GCP, and Azure. We are your hosts, Justin, Jonathan, Ryan, and Peter. Episode 142, recorded on November 3rd, 2021. The Cloud Pod spends the weekend at the Google Data Lakehouse. Good evening, Jonathan, Ryan, and Peter. Hola. Hi. How was uh, your week in the cloud? Was it good? Soggy. <laughs> yeah, really. <laughs> yeah. A little wet, little, little, all those things. Well, yeah, pretty good. Well, you know, ignite. You know, ignite was this week igniting the cloud space uh, on fire with announcements. So there's a lot to cover this week. But first up is an earnings once again. And first up, out of the gate is Azure with their earnings announcement. Uh, they did quite well once again. Microsoft posted quarterly revenues of $45.3 billion, up 22%, beating Wall Street expectations. Profits were $20.5 billion, up 48%, uh, but that did, not, that did include some unusual tax benefit of $3.3 billion. Uh, so without that, profits were only $17.2 billion. I will cry in my Wheaties later. Uh, which is up 24%, which still exceeded the Wall Street expectations. Microsoft Cloud rose 36% to $20.7 billion, exceeding the $20 billion in a quarter for the first time in the company's history. Now, remember, this is Azure, Office 365, Dynamics 365, and a portion of the LinkedIn commercial revenue. So don't go out there saying AWS is no longer the biggest, because that's not true. Uh, but just looking at the Intelligent Cloud division, it had a 31% jump in revenue up to $17 billion, fueled by Azure revenue growth of 50% and an operating profit of 39%, or $7.6 billion. Uh, Satya Nadella had to say, businesses, small and large, can improve productivity and the affordability of their products and services by building tech intensity. The Microsoft Cloud delivers the end-to-end platforms and tools organizations need to navigate this time of transition and change. I will take my tech intensity and not go to the cloud with Azure. Thank you. I'm stuck on the the transfer of properties from Puerto Rico to U.S. I'm like, that's a lot of properties. Three point three billion, for a very yeah. Small island, yeah. yeah, yeah. That's interesting too. I w- I was a little confused by that, but. And do you think it's like literal property, like real estate, or do you think maybe it's quote unquote properties, like money that's sitting offshore? I, I, I mean, I, if I was in finance, I could probably answer this question for you. I'm sure there's a very yeah. a very well known <laughs> SEC compliant definition for this. I just don't know what it is. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I suspect it's the same as like everyone incorporates in Delaware for the tax reasons. This is going to be something along those lines where it's, you know, there's a P.O. box. But that P.O. box is worth $3.3 billion. Exactly. I mean, again, if you're taking your financial advice for stock purchasing from us, I would recommend you not do that because we are not an accredited financial advisory firm, nor do we track this stuff like you should if you really want to be successful at this. So we just talk about this because it's interesting to show comparisons between three clouds. (laughs) It sounds like a really good quarter, but when when he says... During this time of transition and change, at the end, it's it's like it's like, it's like, the, uh, it's like he's grieving over something. I don't know. <laughs> it is it is a little bit weird wording, but yeah, I don't know. yeah. Marketing people, what do you want to say? Well, let's move on to Alphabet, or as we like to call them, Google. Alphabet had a good quarter as well, fueled, of course, by ads and GCP. Although there was apparently a slight miss on the YouTube and cloud revenue expectations, because again, the analysts uh, said it should have been more. Uh, profit of $18.9 billion, though, which you know I'd be fine with, was up 68% from a year ago on revenue that was up 41% to $65.1 billion. Revenue climbed 45% in the Google Cloud to just under $5 billion on a loss of $644 million, but that is down from the loss of a billion dollars a year ago. Uh, despite this, the revenue in the cloud business was slightly below, as I mentioned. So, But the loss is less. I mean, you got to be happy about that, right? 
And uh, Sundar Pichai had to say, five years ago, I laid out a vision to become an AI-first company. This quarter's results show how our investments there are enabling us to build more helpful products for people and our partners. Ongoing improvements to search and the new Pixel 6 are great examples. And as the digital transformation and shift to hybrid work continue, our cloud services are helping organizations collaborate and stay secure. Overall, we continue to see strong momentum in cloud and the team is executing well. Security continues to be an area of focus and an advantage for us. Multi-cloud continues to be a different trader and we have focus on that from the start. Yeah, I'm curious to see the when they get the scale, what they're operating profits are going to look like. Obviously, they're still in growth mode. It's going to be a little while, but... Uh, I mean, they cut it almost in half in a year. I mean, that's pretty decent. I mean, well, not about 40%, but you know, still, it's a pretty decent reduction. I mean, you're talking maybe about 18 months to profitability on the Google Cloud business if it continues at that growth rate and that expense rate. So that's not chappy. Yep. Yeah, it would always be, be an interest if they would break out you know, the investments they've made in, in, the, in the future. You know, and we spent... Three billion dollars on building this undersea cable or this data center or this this other technology kind of thing, so you can understand why they report a loss when they're obviously being very, very successful. Well, I mean, a lot of that's capitalizable yeah. investment, right? So that would show up in their right. balance sheet as capitalized uh, investments. It doesn't break it down by what the investment was necessarily. Sometimes they do, but not normal uh, to do that. So you you get some idea roughly what they're spending in capital, but then you know, how long they're amortizing that capital investment is unknown because uh, you you don't know what the assets are themselves. Are you still there? It's gotten very quiet. Mm-hmm. Okay. You said you said amortizing, so I think I think we lost the entire audience. Oh, audience. Uh, sorry. Yeah, <laughs> I drifted off there for a minute, <laughs> daydreaming about like talking about numbers this big. <laughs> One day, yeah, I know it's that's, that's why I find it so funny when the analysts are off by like you know three percent, and you're like, yeah, but it was still measured in billions, guys. Like we're not, <laughs> you yeah. know, it's not like a hundred dollars versus three million dollars. It's it's you know a significant amount of money. Uh, unfortunately, when you take your cloud and you pair it with a retail industry that has a very expensive costs, uh, you don't always have a great quarter. <laughs> and that is what happened to <laughs> Amazon, uh, who had a rough earnings report compared to Microsoft and Alphabet. Uh, profit plunged 49% from a year ago to $3.2 billion uh, on increased revenue of $110.8 billion for the quarter. Uh, the revenue was at the high end of the guidance provided by Amazon, but of course the uh, profit was not in guidance at all. AWS outperformed as usual with operating profits of $3.5 billion, up 38% from a year ago, on a 39% rise in revenue to $16.1 billion, which was higher than the 37% from the last quarter and 29% from a year ago. Uh, Amazon points their profit was at unfavorable exchange rates and increased costs of labor, supplies, and ongoing supply chain challenges. Uh, and Andy Jassy, here with his first quote as CEO of, AWS, or of Amazon, Uh, We've always said that that when confronted with the choice between optimizing for short-term profits versus what's best for our customers, over the long term, we will choose the latter. And you see that during every phase of this pandemic. But it also driven extraordinary investments across our business to satisfy customer needs. Just one example is that we've nearly doubled the size of our fulfillment network since the pandemic began. In the fourth quarter, we expect to incur several billion dollars of additional costs in our consumer business as we manage through labor supply shortages, increased wage costs, global supply chain issues, and increased freight and shipping costs all while doing whatever it takes to minimize the impact on customers and selling partners this holiday season. It'll be expensive for us in the short term, but it's the right prioritization for our customers and our partners, which I guess just means that they're going to make sure I get those uh, Christmas gifts within two days that I order mm-hmm. on the site, no matter what. They also have uh, expenses yeah. of reInvent, which I'm sure will not be cheap compared to the revenue that they're going to make <laughs> on, the, on the conference. So yeah, that's all in the Q4 uh, quarter as well. Have you gone back to, like, uh, pre-COVID behavior and buying things now, or are you uh, still buying much more online? I'm, I'm still buying almost everything online. I 
so rarely go to the store these days unless like there's a need for immediate desire to pick something up. But then even in that case, I'm, I'm doing a lot of Instacart. So Yeah. It's even farther for me where I got so used to buying like buying stuff online that I got really good at instead of like taking a note to remember to buy something, I would just go to my Amazon app and stick it in the cart and press buy now. <laughs> and so I actually bought a lot more stuff, just period. Yeah. <laughs> Pro tip, if you put stuff in your, uh, in your wish list around, around uh, Black, Flo- uh, Black Friday, can't speak, there'll probably be a discount on it. So. <laughs> yeah, I just buy now and then just every day something shows up at the door. I'm like, oh yeah, I remember that. A little gift to yourself. Yeah. Yeah. Today was a rubber pad so that my downstairs neighbors don't hear my outdoor furniture banging and bumping when the wind blows it around. Exciting. That's very generous of you. I, I, yeah. most, neighbors, <laughs> most neighbors just let that go. They'd be like, hey, uh, this is the wind. I can't help you. So. <laughs> All right. Put a brick on the chair. <laughs> well, we are, in the, uh, we are in the final few weeks of going general available before reInvent, so you don't lap yourself for products that announced at reInvent. Uh, and so AWS has a generally available uh, Babelfish for Amazon Aurora PostgreSQL, uh, which, of course, is their answer to goodbye, Microsoft SQL Server. Hello, Babelfish. Uh, this was announced last year at reInvent as a way to move from expensive proprietary MS SQL databases to the Amazon Aurora, Bo- Aurora Compatible Edition. And customers wishing to migrate from proprietary databases had the desire and financial incentive to, but the projects typically are time-consuming, resource-intensive, and prone to failure. And while you can use things like AWS Schema Conversion Tool and AWS AWS Migration Service, there's always work to do to migrate the application itself, including rewriting application code and business logic that interacts with the database. But by using this new Babelfish capability, you can migrate your application in a fraction of the time that traditional migration may need, and you can, use, you can continue to use existing queries and drivers your applications use today. Babelfish adds the capabilities to Amazon Aurora Postgres to understand the SQL Server Wire Protocol, Tabular Data Stream, or TDS for short, as well as extending Postgres SQL to understand commonly used T-SQL commands used by SQL Server. Support for T-SQL includes elements such as SQL dialect, static cursors, data types, triggers, store procedures, and functions. Uh, Amazon likes to mention that this is not a trivial task, and there's lots of idiosyncrasies in migrating a 30-year-old product. <laughs> for example, the money data type in SQL Server has four decimal place precision versus Postgres only having two. Uh, these subtle changes might lead to rounding errors and have impacts on financial reporting, which is not what you want in a uh, translation layer. So Battlefish ensures the semantics of SQL Server data types and T-SQL functionality are preserved. And so AWS created a money type that SQL Server apps would expect. And when you create a table with this data type through Babelfish, you get a compatible data type and behavior that a SQL Server app would expect. Uh, there's a quote here from Raju Galubani, VP of Databases and Analytics at AWS. More and more customers have told us they want a fast, inexpensive, and low-risk way to break free from old guard database vendors and their punitive licensing terms, high costs, and lack of innovation. Now with Babelfish for Aurora Postgres SQL Server, uh, anyone can quickly, easily, and cost-effectively migrate their applications to Amazon Aurora, giving customers the best of both worlds, the performance and availability of the highest-grade commercial databases at a cost more commonly associated with open source. Available now at no additional cost to Aurora Postgres SQL customers. I wish they hadn't announced this last year. I wish they just saved it until it was ready yeah. <laughs> and then launched it with the fanfare that it really deserves because it's, 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 it's a bit of a drag trying to get into the beta program and, and not getting into the beta program and be excited about the technology and you know maybe we don't need to spend $5 million on licenses this year and then having to spend the $5 million on licenses this year. So I don't know, it's a, the, the urge to get stories out so soon and be like first to announce things is... It's understandable, but it's kind of frustrating when when they don't materialize. I mean, we joke about you know lapping 
lapping themselves at reInvent, but um, literally it's like three weeks away, so it sucks. Don't do it again. Like they should just have waited until the product was ready to announce before they actually announced it. It's just vaporware is just well, no fun. Yeah, I mean, I, I know I signed up for this, and I don't think I ever got contacted to join it. <laughs> so yeah, I don't know how real Me the preview too. was. Uh, you know, maybe, you know, and again, like if you're looking for a, a few select customers to be investment customers to, to develop this with, you you know who your sales reps are. Tell your sales reps, hey, we're looking for four or five customers to help us develop a product. I don't know. I, I don't get the announcement either. It makes no sense to me if you waited this long to actually ship. Now, it may be that they thought they could ship it much faster and they found when they actually use it for customers that these things like this money data type uh, cause them issues. I don't know. It, it, but I agree with you, Jonathan. I think it would have been a bigger splash this year saying, you know, this is working and we already have customers using it and this is what they're saving right now by using this capability and you can use it too. I think it's a much more compelling story on stage. I just don't understand if they think SQL Server is crap or great because at first they say that people are tired of a 30-year-old product that lacks innovation and then they say that you get the best of both worlds. Well, I, I think what customers... Performance and availability of the highest grade commercial databases and a cost associated with open source. I mean, I mean, I think what they're really saying here is no one likes to pay their SQL Server bill or the Oracle bill or any of those bills because they're super expensive. Yeah. And so what they want is they want the low, low cost of open source, uh, but the same capability and features as uh, the enterprise products. And you can get that with Postgres, but you know the cost to make the switch is so high that most customers fail in the migration efforts. And so if they can meet you where you're at, which is that you already have SQL Server code, then you can get you onto this platform and you can slowly migrate to the, you know, to the native way over time as it makes sense, I think. That's at least how I view it. Yeah. And I, I agree with you. And I think that is what customers want. Um, I just think it's a little disingenuous to say lack of innovation when that is also the performance and availability of the highest grade commercial databases. I mean, it, it's funny because if you could get Microsoft SQL Server for way less money and you could get Oracle for way less money, you know, and, and you can still charge for it. I think just more reasonable cost. People would right. still use those databases like right. crazy because they're pretty good at what they do. And yeah, that's, what, that's I guess my point is that they're I pretty mean, good I, at what they do. No startup would choose Oracle today, but if, if Oracle was free or Oracle didn't have predatory licensing, about a lot more startups would be using Oracle today. Yeah. Because it's just that good. And at some point, at some point, they'll lose enough customers to where the lowering the price will increase their revenue instead of decreasing their revenue. And at that point, they'll probably do it. And we'll see if it's too late at that point. Yeah. Apart from the old customers, they'll keep charging them the regular rates, yeah. right? <laughs> they'll, they'll put one of those like for new customers switching to AT and T, you can get this yeah. super, super mm-hmm. fantastic rate that no one else can get. You know, one of those deals. <laughs> All the existing customers are super mad. All right. Well, uh, you know, we talked about the M6i instances not that long ago, which meant that uh, it was very much inevitable that the uh, C6i would be coming, just like Thanos would say, inevitable. Uh, They offer you a 15% improvement in price performance uh, for your compute, up to 9% higher memory bandwidth, up to 40 gigabits per second of EBS throughput, and 50 gigabits per second of networking, and always-on encrypted memory, all in the new uh, Xeon scalable processor on the C6i. Now it's time to go through all my, you know, deployment code and, and figure out where I've selected the C5s and see if I can just get an instant cost cutting by changing that. You just do a, great? a find replace and then Terraform apply. No, what the problem is, right? Yeah, I mean, the, the hourly rate, I'm sure, is is the hourly rate lower or is it just that these things are going to have a 15% bump in performance? It's a combination. Which means then you've got to 
you got to right size in order to get that to actually say 15%. You also have to right size. Yeah. And sometimes it's really tough to right size by 10% of CPU. You can't. You have to downgrade by you know, 50% or 25% based on the next increment that's available. So unfortunately, it's not always that easy. Mm, that's true. It was with yeah. the, uh, what was the the storage type, the GP2 to GP3? It was that simple. <laughs> yes, that one is super easy. And if you're probably still on C3s, this would be super yeah. easy. <laughs> no brainer. <laughs> just cut everything in half. So uh, Half the CPU, same yeah. memory. So I'm just Done. looking here at the C5 X large versus the C6i X large. They're identical price. So no. <laughs> yeah, so you're getting more performance. So yeah, I mean, you've got big auto scaling clusters then. Yeah, they should be scaling to fifteen percent lower yeah. peak and giving the same computer. Yeah, in theory, if you had a, a scaling cluster of hundred nodes, you should be able to do it with ninety in theory, based on this. So, yep. Yeah, it yep. doesn't help you with one box, but multiple boxes. Yeah, doesn't help with one box. <laughs> All right. Uh, well, something uh, that I sort of remember was annoying, but had sort of forgotten about: <laughs> Amazon fleets, uh, which were launched to help mitigate risk associated with spot instance uh, market volatility. Uh, allowed you to create dynamic auto-scaling groups that use a mix of on-demand, reserved, and spot instances, as well as multiple different spot types, uh, you know, C5 versus C6s, for example. However, uh, these had to be manually updated whenever new instances came out or when specific requirements changed for your fleet configurations. And so AWS is now giving us attribute-based instance type selection for fleets, uh, which is a new feature that lets you express your instance requirements as attributes such as vCPU, memory, storage, and those requirements are then retranslated by ABS to all matching instance types, Really simplifying the creation and maintenance of instance type configurations. Uh, ABS supports capacity optimized and lowest price allocation strategies for spot instances, and for on demand, it supports the lowest price allocation strategy. And by default, ABS enables price protection to keep your spending under control. Price protection makes sure ABS avoids provisioning super expensive instance types, even if they happen to fit the attributes you selected, and keeps the price of provisioned instances within certain boundaries that you can set and manage. Uh, so, I like this. Uh, I like vCPU. I like memory. I like storage. But what I really would like is clock speed, <laughs> as as one of the targets Ooh. of my attributes. But, uh, <laughs> mm-hmm. Or you know, even uh, Xeon family or chipset type. Uh, those are also things that I've had to uh, filter for in the past as well. So it's a great start. Uh, I like this. I wish they'd add some more attributes that I could filter on. Yeah, I think it's super neat. And I mean, it's just smart. Uh, and then uh, I mean, you could see a world someday where you don't even have to know anything about instances. You can only be selecting them based on the attributes needed. It's funny because we talked about this in the past, where Amazon would move to a model where you could just deploy your own instances of any shape and size you like, mm-hmm. or whether they'd stick with their, their, their sort of named instances with specific configurations. And so they're kind of cheating in a way. They're, they're going to keep their same uh, sets of configurations, their C6s and their C5s and their X-Larges and 9X-Larges and everything else. But you could still tell them exactly what you want and they'll just right. fi- find the best fit. So best it's, it's, fit. it's like the best yeah. of both worlds. They, they, they can still um, you know, stack those VMs into the hypervisors efficiently because people aren't doing wacky things like picking you know, tons of memory and no CPU or something. Uh, yeah, it's, it's awesome. Yeah. But yeah, you, you're right though, Peter. I think, I think it is. It's like eventually we will get to a place where we don't need to know what, what the CPU is or we, we don't need to know what the clock speed is because it'll all just be as good as it's going to get. That's awesome. It's cool. I don't know. I'm dubious just because when I think about, you know, how I'd implement this and some of the workloads I'm running, it's, it's always the edge cases that make the most noise, right? It's always the, <laughs> like, I know I'm going to mess this up. <laughs> it, well, there's the, I'm going to mess this up, but then there's also sort of like, you know, the, the people that just need to 
run workloads based on like CPU or memory, like those aren't the ones that really are the the edge cases. It's the ones that have like the the high network throughput weirdness or the the yeah like the very specific type of CPU you know architecture that they need. And so eh, you know like at a certain point you're sort of back to carving out your own instance groups, managing your fleet types all you know all yourself. And so like I don't know. I do want to try this out and maybe, you know, for most of the 90% or whatever it works out, great. I want to just now, I want to see someone take like a incredibly complex AI generated piece of code that picks the attribute for you and just see what happens. And then just get the popcorn, watch them put it into prod and just watch. Mm-hmm. It'd be great. It'd work most of the time. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. It would. <laughs> Most of the time, it works all the time. Yeah. Well, very rarely do does my entertainment uh, fanboyness of James Bond and 007 come into the cloud world. And But today, I can proudly <laughs> announce that AWS has won the contract to provide cloud storage to the UK spy agencies, including MI6 and MI5. And I look forward to finding out all the cool things Q builds for the next James Bond. Uh, all using AWS technologies and power. It's estimated to be valued at $689 million to $1.38 billion over the next 10 years uh, as the UK adopts all things AWS, which uh, you know makes sense when you consider the data sharing that intelligence agencies in the US and UK do, considering AWS intelligence agencies also use AWS. Uh, you can see the synergies already. Spoiler alert, it's just a crap ton of surveillance data. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> Unfortunately. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I'd rather uh, I'd rather other countries be using U.S. vendors for this than the U.S. using other countries' vendors for this. So that is true. Yeah. Uh, so Ryan, how do you feel about Windows containers these days? <laughs> <laughs> Tell us how you really yeah. what you really think. How long the show do we have? Like, uh... <laughs> don't can don't candy coat it like you usually do. Is that blood coming from your eyes? Yeah, I, I I still very much hate Windows containers with every bone in my body, like every, down to the the cell and the mitochondria. Still really hate Windows <laughs> yeah. containers. Uh, but so yeah, you know, is it is your hatred? No, is, is your hatred though the running the <laughs> Windows hosts? Is it running the Windows container itself? Is it building the forty five gigabyte container image? Like which part of it is it really that bothers you the most? It's mostly just running workloads that yeah you expect to be sort of snappy and dynamic and then due to some sort of you know either architecture or some sort of um compromise uh you need to run in a windows platform and then it's you know seven minutes for a container to start up so i mean it's really too bad you said that because i can't help you with that still it's still gonna be a 45 gigabyte image but i can now let you run that windows container on amazon ecs with fargate so now you don't have to run the windows host you don't have to run any of the patching of the Windows box. You don't have to worry about Active Directory of the Windows box. You just have to define your task and your definition of the task and build your container in Windows and find, you know, 550 gigs to store it. But then it can be run by AWS for you on top of AWS Fargate. And so that's a, a new capability. So I think this may be the best way to run a Windows container, honestly, because it just takes away so much of the pain uh, that you already had. And uh, my sanity at least would be a little bit better with this way to manage uh, AWS containers for Windows than uh, any other method you could run them for. No, yeah. I mean, the the best machine to support and run is one you don't have to, right? So I, this is definitely a step in the right direction. I don't know, maybe I'm just negative today, but you know, the, the all the Windows workloads that I've had 
work on containerized that the gotcha has always been Active Directory. It um, always is, Ryan. It always is awesome. in the Windows world. Yeah, it always is. Yeah. And so like this has probably worked really great if if you, you know, don't have, you know, Active Directory as a, as a workload or, you know, if I don't know if I didn't read the article, so I don't know if they have native integration with AD Connector. But which has its own limitations, but you know, it's hopefully this is a step in the right direction. I mean, as a day one, as a day one feature, it for sure does not have connectivity to the AD connector. But I'm sure in the next five to six yeah. weeks, we'll be talking about it in the lightning round as they get back. <laughs> because it, it's a, you know, it'd always be one of those things that comes right after that. But yeah, I, I did not see AD connector in the in the article. What's well, the challenge with Windows containers? Yeah. Um, like, how do you, you know, like that's a, how do you have different node types and different stuff on AD running on these nodes? You know, even with with AD connector, it's it's difficult to to get. Um, Specified objects in AD. Down with AD. Kill it with fire. Just wait while I reboot my my Windows containers to join the domain. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, You have to sysprep a container now? Oh my God. Imagine the pain. I mean, I I think the way that, at least in Kubernetes world, the the Active Directory ownership of the host actually becomes the way that AD and the container authenticates. You don't have to do that reboot and stuff like that. But yeah, in a Fargate where it's Amazon, it may be more problematic. So it'll be, it'll be curious to see. I'm not surprised it's not here today. Uh, curious if it comes quickly or if it comes many, many months from now when we've totally forgotten about it. So. Hey everyone, Jonathan here. I just wanted to take a minute to thank the cloud consulting gurus at Foghorn for helping make the cloud pod possible. These folks truly get it. Cloud consulting experts since 2008, they are premier tier partners with AWS, Google Cloud Platform Silver, and Microsoft Azure partners. From multi-cloud to containers to moving full production workloads to the cloud under the tightest compliance, Foghorn's team of full-stack cloud engineers have been there, done that, gotten the t-shirt, and are ready to share their experience with you. If you're in the market for some talent to supplement your team, visit www.fogops.io slash thecloudpod www.fogops.io slash the cloud pod foghorn the promise of cloud delivered well next up uh, is sage maker studio has a new friend uh, or enemy depending on how you want to look at this uh, so two years ago they introduced sage maker studio which was the industry's first fully integrated development ide for machine learning and SageMaker Studio provides a single web-based virtual interface where you can perform all ML development steps, improving data science team productivity by up to 10 times. Of course, the data scientists rejected this and went with R, <laughs> and the R project, and a product called RStudio. And RStudio is one of the most popular IDEs among R developers for ML and data science projects. And RStudio provides open-source tools for R enterprise-ready professional software for data science teams to develop and share their work in the organization. But building, securing, scaling, and maintaining an RStudio yourself is tedious and cumbersome, as all things are in data science. Uh, AWS, in collaboration with RStudio PVC, are announcing the general availability of RStudio on Amazon SageMaker, the industry's first fully managed RStudio workbench IDE in the cloud. And you can bring your current RStudio license to easily migrate your self-managed RStudio to Amazon SageMaker in a few easy steps. Uh, so data scientists now have the freedom of choice between RStudio and Amazon SageMaker Studio Notebooks with all their work, including code, datasets, repositories, and artifacts stored, stored and synchronized between the two environments through the underlying EFS storage. Uh, and this is available to you in all regions where both SageMaker Studio and AWS License Manager are available. Ooh, are they enabling it by default like uh, Microsoft did with <laughs> their Jupyter Notebooks integration? Nope, oh, they're no. not enabling it by default. <laughs> oh, you have no. to go tell it you want this. <laughs> Uh, and you have to have a license, first of all, because, uh, so interestingly enough, 
uh, you know, you have to bring a license from our studio PBC and you have to set it up in the AWS license manager. And I was surprised that there's that this isn't just integrated into the marketplace for new customers, but for existing customers, I, I think that's great. Um, but I was a little surprised this isn't embedded in marketplace and isn't something you can just buy through that model. But it's good to see them partnering with somebody versus just building a competitive product uh, and then competing with them. What's wrong with Jupyter Notebooks? That's all I want to know. Well, that's what, that's what this, I mean. Very simple. That's what the original product was. Amazon SageMaker Studio was just notebooks from Jupyter. But, uh, you know, just like Kubernetes, developers chose not to use the Amazon solution. They went a different way. And so now Amazon's trying to say, well, since you chose the other thing, we'll support both. But we'll convince you to go to the other way, to the dark side, if we can. I mean, the, the big the big caveat in all of this stuff is, like, I, you know, I'm a big fan of Mighty for coding and, and that integrated environment where, you know, to reduce context shifting. But when you're talking about access to data, you know, Jupyter is something that's hosted, something that you can protect and you can grant access to versus an IDE like our studio. How? Like, you know, it becomes a much trickier scenario to sort of maintain any kind of data sovereignty or, or protect that in any way, just because you, by its true nature, you have to open it up. So I, in SageMaker, I think is a good compromise because it sort of turns our studio into a hosted thing that you can lock in. Craziness. Craziness, I say. Uh, yeah. I, again, it's, it's an interesting model that Amazon is taking with its partner, though. I, I, that's the part that's more interesting to me because I don't know anything about data science. But, you know, I'm, I'm, excited, I'm excited about this. So. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, so Amazon slipped through the What's New RSS feed, uh, this announcement. And this announcement, in my opinion, deserved a full blog post because this is a feature I've asked for for a very long time. Uh, Amazon CloudFront now supports configurable cores, security, and custom HTTP response headers. And this allows you now to add cross-origin resource sharing or core security, custom headers to HTTP responses returned by your CloudFront distribution. And you no longer need to configure your origin or use custom Lambda at the edge or CloudFront functions to insert these headers. With the release, CloudFront is writing several pre-configured response header policies. These include policies for default security headers, a course policy allowing resource sharing from any origin, a pre-flight course policy allowing all HTTP methods, and policies combining default security headers with cores or pre-flight cores. And you can also create custom policies for various content and application profiles and apply to any CloudFront caching behavior. Uh, so having to always go configure Apache or Tomcat properly to pass the course header if you're using that as your backend of your uh, CloudFront, uh, and that has to be configured and, uh, and infrastructure controlled. Uh, I really like this because now I can just update CloudFront and I can ignore my servers even more than I already like to. Yes. Mm-hmm. Nice. Now, I remember complaining or, or opining about not really understanding why, you know, Lambda at the Edge was such a thing and why this needed to happen until someone gave me this use case where you can't modify <laughs> the CloudFront headers. So it's like, you're back yeah, to uh, now I'm back to what the hell is Lambda at the Edge for now? Right. You know, it's funny, it's funny because I, I didn't actually have a good use case for Lambda at the Edge or CloudFront functions. And then I saw this and I was like, I could do that with, the, with those? I didn't even think about that solution. <laughs> I never, it never even crossed my mind. I've just always been the schmuck who's updating the Apache config files all the time. And, you know, this, this is much better. <laughs> so now I don't have to learn, I don't have to learn Lambda at the Edge. I, mean, I like that too. 
Well, the irony in that is probably that they implemented this feature using Lambda at the probably edge. Probably so. <laughs> 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 they've, just, they've, they've just abstracted it away from you, so it's, so now it's a box in the in the cloud console. Which I like, which I like much better. Those workers to do I, that thing. I, I don't yeah. mind. You <laughs> can yes, use whatever technology you want to. Amazon the back end. I will just use the simple form you gave me, and I'll, I'm sure Terraform will be updated to support it, and I'll just plug in what I want there, and I can stop updating the comp file on all my servers. So I appreciate it. Moving on to Alphabet. Apparently, Forrester has named Google AppSheet, or Alphabet Google AppSheet, a leader in low-code platforms for business developers. And Google is very proud to be named a leader in the recent Forrester wave for low-code platforms for business developers, Q4 2021. Yay. AppSheet received the highest marks possible in the product vision and plan enhancement criteria, with Forrester noting AppSheet's vision for AI-infused and supported citizen development is unique and particularly well-suited to Google. The tech giant's deep pockets and ecosystem give AppSheet an advantage in its path to market, market visibility, and product roadmap. Features for process automation and AI are leading. The platform provides a clean, intuitive modeling environment suitable for both long-running processes and triggered automations, as well as useful range of pragmatic AI services such as document ingestion. <sighs> okay. <laughs> hmm. full, of, full of wonderful words. Yeah. Uh-huh. Infused. Hmm. They, they put the artificial intelligence inside a, a tea bag and then wave it in front <laughs> Wave it in front of a spreadsheet, and it infuses the spreadsheet with with intelligence. Yeah. Seems very yeah. tailored to someone who would enjoy low code solutions for automation. Yes, uh, AI infuse. I can. I mean, they 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 had me last week with you know low code in my Gmail with like simple forms, and then they then they came back with app sheets, the future of AI, and and low code and citizen developers and bespoke development again. And I I'm now back on the you dirty animals get off my lawn. So. <laughs> I wish they changed the name though, because App Sheet just it may, it, it, oh, shit. it's actually the best name ever because every low code solution out there is an Excel spreadsheet. So you right. just it's an Excel spreadsheet with an app on top of it. So it's yeah. it's actually well done. This is actually the only one that makes sense, which is why we hate it. What? Yeah, but it's a steaming pile of sheet. Mm. At least it's better than Honeycode. So yes, <laughs> about the same. <laughs> <laughs> well, one is one is infuriatingly sexist, and the other one is just annoyingly on the nose name wise. So I'll take AppSheet over Honeycode all day of the week. <laughs> uh, so if you know what Django is, uh, you'll care about this announcement. Uh, but apparently, the Django Orm now fully supports Cloud Spanner. The Django Google Spanner package is a third-party database backend for Cloud Spanner, powered by the Python Cloud Spanner library. The Django Orm is a powerful standalone component of the Django Web Framework that maps Python objects to relational data. Uh, this article walks you through setting up Django with Cloud Spanner or, or migrating from existing database to the Cloud Spanner, now enabling you to use the awesomeness of a global database uh, on Google with your Django web apps. So did did Google write this? I'm, they wrote the the Django Google Spanner package. It's yeah. a it's a plugin, yeah, it's right? Just a plugin, like you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was just curious if they wrote it or if this was a sign that the open source community was. Was embracing no, no, no. Spanner, which would be a- no, no one, no one oh, in the open source okay. community said, you know, let's support a proprietary <laughs> database that only runs on Google. This was one thousand yeah. percent built by Google. <laughs> yeah, yes, that's smart. I, they're they're all going to have to do this for all the open source yeah uh, frameworks if they're going to want. Well, support. I mean, if you if you create a database that's not Postgres or MySQL like Amazon did, and you you think it's awesome, you now need to get everyone to onboard to it. So you need WordPress drivers, you need Django drivers, you need all these things. So this is just yeah. the beginning of many of these, I assume. Well, that's Banner's note. Yeah. How come there's no uh, Ruby gem? Because Ruby's 
on the way out. <laughs> you often step up. <laughs> Showing your age, Peter. <laughs> Just want a Ruby gem. I was, I was an app I'm supporting these days has Ruby components to it, and you know I'm in the I'm in the single threaded versus multi threaded problem of Ruby all over again, and I'm like, oh yeah. Every time I get away, I think, oh yeah, you know, Ruby wasn't so bad. I get thrown back into single threaded. And I remember how much I hate this every time. <laughs> yeah, so we did call you, Peter. We are working with you. <laughs> yeah, I want to, no, I mean me personally. I want to. Uh, I want to not do contracts and business stuff for a little while. Maybe just I'll write a there little Ruby. You can go back to the old days. You can, you can redo the website in Ruby if you'd like for the CloudPod. If you want to, if you want a side project. Oh, awesome. It doesn't get enough throughput to care about single-threaded versus multi-threaded, so it's fine. <laughs> It'll work out just great. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. <laughs> Perfect. Love it. Uh, well, uh, Google has uh, come back to us with another article about data warehousing. Uh, with organizations having traditional siloed and separated their data architectures, data warehouses used to store structured aggregate data primarily used for BI and reporting, whereas data lakes used to store unstructured and semi-structured data in large volumes primarily used for ML workloads. This, of course, results in extensive data movement, processing, and duplication requiring complex ETL pipelines, and so uh, Google has a new data framework they like to call the Data Lakehouse to help address this, which combines key benefits of data lakes and data warehouses. And this architecture offers low-cost storage in an open format accessible by a variety of processing engines like Spark, while also providing powerful management and optimization features. And this blog, which I will not go into more detail of, uh, is great use cases how to set this up and how to use Google technologies to build your own Data Lakehouse. I just want to go sit by the Data Lakehouse. I don't know about you guys. It just sounds nice. Like, just gonna go to the data lake house and chill. I, I want to see if they can allow different formats of data to communicate with each other when they're a year apart in time, like the lake house, the movie. Oh, that's been a long time since I've seen that movie. Yeah, I you remember, remember that movie, crazy yeah. movie. <laughs> that's what I want. Uh, so spot VMs, uh, which have been around for a while on different clouds, including Google, uh is now being enhanced with the Spot VM now in preview on Google Cloud, which all the all of my friends yelling at the podcast player home and saying, they already have those. Uh, they do. They're called preemptible VMs. <laughs> These are Spot VMs. So stay with me <laughs> as I get you through this. Uh, so you now can begin deploying Spot VMs in your Google projects to improve your TCO with a maximum discount of 91% over on-demand VMs. Uh, provide you better automation using GKE to handle all your deployments to seamlessly mix Spot VMs with on-demand VMs or preemptive ones, uh, and ease of use of integration with Spot VMs available globally and are simply one-line changes to start with in all of your infrastructure's code. And again, for those yelling, the main difference between a preemptive VM and a Spot VM, which I did not know until today, so today I learned, uh, the main difference being that preemptive VMs are offered at a discount of up to 79%, but come with a time limit. After running for 24 hours, preemptive VMs are stopped. Uh, with the new Spot VM, there is no time limit. However, they can be terminated at any time within 30 seconds. And because you're willing to have your server shot in the head at any moment, this allows for an even deeper discount of 91%. So if that extra roughly 12% is worth it to you, you can get this new opportunity to have servers get yanked out from underneath you at any time. Uh, unlike the bidding process in other clouds, Google provides you with an advanced knowledge of your Spot VM price will cost, or Spot VM will cost you. And the discount will always be a minimum of 60% and up to as much as 91% off their on-demand prices. As part of their rollout, they are also partnering with Spot.io to ensure that their joint customers can take advantage of the best pricing ever. Uh, and Google Clouds, uh, we have a quote here from Amram Satcher, VP of GM of Spot.io who's been on the TCP talk show. Spot.io is excited about the market-leading combination of savings and predictability of Google Cloud's new Spot VMs, 
Google Spot VMs will offer our joint customers more flexibility and versatility in automating cloud infrastructure workloads and create more opportunities to optimize cloud spend while accelerating cloud adoption across microservices, containers, and VM-based stateless and stateful applications. So is this actually a collaboration? Like, is this using Spot's automation technology on top of preemptibles to get, quote-unquote, Spot no. VMs? No. This you is can just use this slight... with or without Spot. Yeah. Oh, okay, so Spot's just, just the... Uh... It's just a different class of preemptible VM. It's just, just has slightly different yep. rules. It's just weird that Spot.io is the one that they're... Well, who else do you know in the market who has name recognition for Spot instance management? I mean, if I was yeah. going to choose someone to partner with, it would be Spot. <laughs> so I, I don't blame them <laughs> at all. So preemptible VMs can be interrupted at any, any point as well, no, right? They, like, they, they're guaranteed, they're they guaranteed to you for 24 hours. So you can stop them or terminate them yourself, uh, but they won't be killed by Google until 24 hours are up. I've always misunderstood that based on the name alone, I suppose. Yeah, I, I also misunderstood that <laughs> as well, but... <laughs> uh, but yeah, but if you, you know, if, you know, so I, I guess in a tw- in 24 hour window, if you wanted it to last longer, you'd have to basically cycle a shutdown restart operation or just spin up a new box. So, you know, I, I sort of get the concept. It just, you know, it's a little weird too. But, you know, not being able to bid, you know, which is kind of how you prevent these problems on AWS, I think is somewhat, the pro- you know, somewhat problematic in some ways. Mm, I don't know. I think the bid market and the spot market is is a ruse and should go away. I like this model much better, but. Yeah, uh, like yeah, just know, give me a price. Yeah, make it easy. The, the guarantee, the guarantee, sixty percent saving couldn't happen with, and it doesn't happen on AWS because I mean, sometimes you even end up paying greater than. That's because you're uh, you're in US yeah. East one. Just go to any other region than that, and you won't have that problem. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, it's you know, it's something I've spent a lot of time orchestrating around trying to you know, the, trying to figure out how to get that, you know, value out of it and where you're failing over to on-demand if the price goes up and failing back and that whole thing. And so it, it just adds complexity for very little value, um, especially if, you know, you're getting, you know, in Google, you can get discounts up to 91%, which is, you know, that's a, I, more than I've ever you know, seen. It's a good saving. I'm not, I'm not saying market. this isn't a good deal. Yeah. I would, I, I'm seriously considered moving mm-hmm. to this for this reason alone. But, uh, you know, I definitely... Yeah. Uh, I think there's advantages and disadvantages to both pricing models. I'm not sure which one is better, but you, you have more experience with it than I do at this point. So I'll... It's all just pain. That's the experience yeah. I have. I mean, anytime you're using Spot as pain is, I think, the thing. So that's why Spot can help you out with that. And they automate some of the things that you've automated already in code. <laughs> so you just have to pay. For, you just have to pay for it. So that's true. Yeah, it's kind of frustrating seeing such deep savings for, for Spot because you know that obviously they're not going to sell anything at less than the, the cost of operation of that. A unit. Can they turn it off? Yeah, mm-hmm. within thirty seconds. Oh yeah, but well, they can, but still, you you still get to use it for the time you get to use it for. And it's like, no, but I mean, like if you look at the actual variable cost of of letting someone use infrastructure that's otherwise sitting in the data center and powered on, it's probably pretty low. Yeah, I mean that is going to be a a tiny fraction of the retail price. And the total cost is everything, right? That's the cooling in the data center. It's the, mm. the energy and all those things. So it's the you know the the name of the game is to really drive up the utilization and make that make sense. So which is why yeah. the ninety one percent is still you know paying off their margin. Yeah. <laughs> oh, for sure. Well, I mean, it's, it's almost like you need to label that the nine percent is this is our operating cost, and the ninety one percent is that's our profit. <laughs> But it's not always their profit. Yeah, well, a gross margin at least, right? Yeah. <laughs> all that, all, all, all that, all that's our, all that's our buffer, I guess. That's our buffer of, uh, of, of profitability. 
I mean, it, it depends on how much utilization there is across their, their fleet of servers. Because that's, that's what changes on the market, right? Someone spins up a whole bunch of stuff. It's more profitable. Well, I mean, but if you're giving it away for this much of a discount, I mean, they could have got away with 80% and still beaten AWS and still maintained 11 points of margin. <laughs> and like you guys said, you know, USC's one, you're not getting, you know, that kind of level of discount anyways in the spot market. Um, so you could have still got all the splash, all the all the things you wanted, and, you know, you still wouldn't have hurt your, you know, your net loss for next quarter as much. <laughs> so, uh, you know, we'll see what it means at the end of the day. Uh, cloud domains, which uh, went into preview in February, are now generally available to make it easier for Google Cloud customers to register for new domains. As of last week, it's now generally available, and with their goal to simplify domain-oriented tasks, they have continued to do that and now innovate with new features. Uh, new features exciting as managed access control through Cloud IAM and Cloud Billing. Uh, now tightly integrated into Cloud DNS as well, making it easy as one click to create your Cloud DNS zones and associate them with your Cloud domain, while the Cloud DNS API makes it easy for you to bulk manage DNS zones for your domain portfolio. Uh, you can now dis- enable DNSSEC with a single click, and you can also transfer third-party domains into the cloud domains through a simple API as well as through a bulk API method. Uh, and on a momentary tangent, I just had to move 10 domains into AWS for someone the other day, and I had to also <laughs> set up redirects through a load balancer to a certain website they wanted me to redirect it to. And that is a super pain. They changed the GUI of Route 53, which I've also complained about previously on the show. But it's even worse now than it was previously <laughs> on the show. And it took forever because of the disconnect between their registration f- function and their actual registration of the domains. Uh, and I wisely did it all through Terraform because I realized that it would be a lot of clicking through the console otherwise. Uh, so I was very blessed that I decided to go that direction versus clicking manually in the console. Uh, but... Did they ever fix? Because to transfer a domain between like Amazon accounts used to require root, right? So I was like, just thinking that. That got fixed a while back. I th- we talked about it here on the show. I don't remember our episode, but uh, we did yeah. talk about that getting fixed. <laughs> like in Superman, we got to turn the two keys at the same time to launch the <laughs> missiles or something. Just to move a domain. <laughs> you know, moving domains. So my, uh, my friend, he had bought all the domains and of course, GoDaddy, because that's where all non-technical people buy domains at. Uh, so I, you know, I have to be affronted with a terrible GoDaddy interface first to then move these domains. And, you know, the amount of validation that you have to do to transfer domains because of how many people have gotten scammed out of domain names (laughs) by by bad actors uh, is ridiculous. And the amount of time that, you know, it takes like 48 hours now to move a domain because of all of the protections they put in place and, you know, all the opportunities, the emails, every person involved to let them know, hey, you're moving this domain. Are you really sure you want to do that? Is this abuse? Click this button. It takes forever now. I haven't done it in a while. Uh, if you need to buy domains and you don't have an Amazon account or Google account, uh, just go to hover.com, please. Just, they're not a sponsor, but, but if you're if you're gonna if you're gonna want to buy domains because you're speculating or whatever, just go to hover and buy there. Just just two cents. That's if there's any domains left. Like I think I think you're lucky to get like a five or six let alone .com domain now that doesn't even make a word anymore because every, everything like yeah. literally everything has been taken. I blame XKCD for that. You mm-hmm. know, I think you know like. Everyone's like, oh, well, I guess anything could be, you know, popular yeah. enough. Well, you can you can buy a lot of domains from these people who just squat on them and, and basically auction them to you for, you know, anywhere from two hundred dollars to five hundred thousand dollars, man. What they think the domain is worth. So, yeah, you can buy them for. Expense. I can't even get a reply on the the domains that I want that are squatted on. I can't even get an answer. There's like there's a handful or so that I you need to go through a broker company. There's ways there's ways to get it done, but it's it's complicated. Yeah. I have like a 15-second attention span. It's not going to happen. So anyways, uh, back to the story. Uh, Glad Domains, general available from Google. Buy your domains there now versus buying them at GoDaddy and transferring them in. There you go. 
For listeners of the CloudPod, you know that I have no love for Microsoft Active Directory, which is why I'm excited to tell you about the leading cloud directory platform, JumpCloud. JumpCloud makes it easy to solve today's IT challenges by unifying device and user management through a single pane of glass, enabling you to securely manage your users and devices and perform common tasks like onboarding and offboarding remote workers. With JumpCloud, you no longer need to implement an on-premise Active Directory infrastructure or additional tooling to scope a user's access, and you can ensure that the user is coming from trusted devices and networks. Enabling JumpCloud's zero-trust solutions improves the security and compliance of your network, ensuring users have access only to the services they need when they need them. To start your organization's move to a modern, secure hybrid work model, try JumpCloud for free today at cloud.jumpcloud.com slash thecloudpod. That's cloud.jumpcloud.com slash thecloudpod. Uh, Azure has blown up the show this week with a lot of announcements. I filtered through probably like 30 bullshit ones. <laughs> so I, there's a bunch of things that I didn't, we're not going to talk about tonight just because I couldn't, I couldn't stomach the thought of talking about it on the show. Uh, but Ignite was this week, which Ignite, of course, is their big IT conference. So they announced all kinds of things for Office 365 and Dynamics 365, as well as some cloud things. We'll talk about the cloud stuff uh, because that's the fun stuff for us. Uh, but first, uh, your Azure Firewall Premium has gotten more premium this week. Uh, with several new features, including the fact that it's now available in more regions. So if you were disappointed that you could not overpay for a firewall before, because it was not in your region, <laughs> it may be in your region now. And some of the regions that I saw on the list were as exciting as gov regions. Yeah, who doesn't like a good premium firewall in the government? Not me. Uh, as well as uh, you know, Virginia, Arizona, and Texas uh, gov regions, and China. So if you're in China and you're like, I can't get that premium firewall, it's all there for you now. Uh, Terraform support for your firewall policy premium is now available, making you define those access rules and sweet, sweet infrastructure as code, which I always like that. Uh, there's a new web categories uh, category check capability now in preview, allowing you to allow or deny sites based on the website category, such as gambling websites, social media websites, or annoying cloud podcasts. Often customers want to check what categories a specific URL <laughs> fall under. This can be done with the Azure portal, and you can submit feedback on the category if you don't think it's accurate, which they will probably ignore because it'll go into a ticketing system that no one ever reviews. But at least you feel better about yourself. And migration <laughs> to a premium SKU using stop-start approach is now available to you. So this allows you to enable the premium firewall and then realize that maybe you need to get approval before you leave it on so you can turn it off without deleting all the rules, uh, but not enabling the rules, and then turn it back on uh, when you've gotten that approval from your boss uh, that you paid for the premium firewall. So mm. uh, those are all the new things. Make your firewall experience more premium. This is more, you know, the start-stop is more just like when you figure out how much it's actually costing yeah. you. You're like, oh no! <laughs> <laughs> the fact that they refer to it as a skew, though, it just just, just kills me. It's like an in, it's an intangible piece of software running in the cloud. It's not yeah. <laughs> it's not a physical thing racked. I mean, I guess at some point it's racked onto a shelf, but whatever. The fact that they they still refer to these things, but as, as though they're physical items, just it just blows my mind. It's just I, I don't know if that's necessarily an Azure fault or if that's just a general accounting fault. Because <laughs> I mean, like. Skew is, SKU is predominant everywhere. Yeah. You know, in CRM products, EDPs, financial systems, SKU is how the world works. So I just, I, you know, yes, it's not a physical asset; it's a virtual asset, but uh, it's still managed by a SKU number. Or, you know, it's a bad name, but it's what it is. A stock item is a stock item, whether it be virtual or physical, right? Like I, it in my head, it does also translate to the physical realm, but true definition of SKU. Well, I mean, a SKU is stock you, keeping uh, unit which is relating to a scannable right, barcode. Yeah. So it really has no place in a world that doesn't have scannable barcodes. No. I mean, it's a... No, it's a... Barcode is nothing besides a number. 
It's a product number, isn't it? It's a product ID. It's a product number. It's, it's an inventory ID code, basically. Yeah. It's just not the choice of words what I used. I don't think I've ever heard AWS or Google use the word SKU when def- defining their products. I mean, I mean, even when even when we were still in the physical world back in '92, you know, I don't know that many people called them SKUs then either. So, you know, it's it's a weird name. It's always been a weird name, no matter what. If you're putting onto virtual goods or real goods, but. Uh, I guess it's a bad time to tell you that we have SKUs in our web store. So like all of our products that we sell through the, the website, like the stickers and the, the pins and all that, they have SKUs associated to them. Yeah, SKUs. SKUs. <laughs> Sorry, Jonathan. <laughs> I like it. Yeah. No. I mean, there's there's SKUs big fan. in our application at work too. Like there's defined defined units. They're everywhere. They're everywhere. Uh, well, what is not everywhere is cybersecurity skills. Uh, apparently. <laughs> And Microsoft is launching a new national campaign to help community colleges expand the cybersecurity workforce. Uh, and this is because apparently there's a skill gap in the cybersecurity of about 200, or about, or about 500,000 people, uh, which they have a desire to train 250,000 people by 2025 which represents about half of the country's workforce shortage, which then I also say, I look forward to the 2068 crisis when they all retire. Uh, because people won't be doing cybersecurity anymore. Uh, Microsoft yeah. is doing this as part of the $20 billion over five-year investment Azure made to improve their security solutions and protect customers, as well as $150 million to help U.S. government agencies upgrade protections and expand their cybersecurity training partnerships. And Microsoft wants to share what they have learned about what they view as national crisis in cybersecurity. Uh, first thing they pointed out was the solar winds attack in February by a nation-state, most likely Russia, and the huge issues is exposed in supply chain security. Second was the hiring frustrations with many small businesses and startups completely locked out of hiring cybersecurity personnel. And in fact, per the data they have analyzed, for every two cybersecurity jobs that are filled, one sits empty. And today, right this minute, there are over 464,000 jobs that are open that require some form of cybersecurity skill. Uh, and then more than one out of 20 open jobs in the U.S. is a cybersecurity job with an average salary of 105000 per year. Uh, NMS has built a Power BI dashboard to help you identify jobs and compensation by state. Hint. California pays a lot more than that. <laughs> to address this, uh, they are delivering ready-to-teach industry-developed curriculum for community colleges. They're building educator administrative capacity and cybersecurity learning paths and announcing the Microsoft Cybersecurity Scholarship Program for low-income students, including veterans. All available to you. Try to boost the number of cybersecurity professionals in the United States by 250,000 by 2025, which is an admirable goal. Uh, I wish, wish they would spend that $20 billion on their own security versus worrying about everyone else's because theirs is not great as of late. Yeah, I was waiting for that. First, they talked about SolarWinds. Second, they talked about... Uh, uh, <laughs> oh, not you? Yeah, oh, okay. not your involvement in this thing? <laughs> Would have guessed. Yeah. <laughs> but that, I mean, it is an admirable goal, and I, I wish this was required curriculum in elementary school, to be quite honest. Like, this is, you know, security is everyone's job, and that's the only way we're really going to tackle cybersecurity issues that we have. So, But this is fantastic, you know, get it at the education level. Yeah, I'd like to work with more people that are. It was interesting that they, you know, they they talk about why they chose community colleges, and just because community college access to uh, students is much better than a normal college, and so that was interesting. Why they're targeting community colleges in particular for this program, um, which is quite good. Yeah, I've dropped out of two community colleges, so it makes sense. (laughs) (laughs) Double exposed. Uh, well, next up is the fact that you can run logs.io on Microsoft Azure via the Marketplace. This offer provides you a seamless experience to vision logs.io accounts and configure Azure resources to send logs to logs.io from Azure Portal, which is just Azure's continual refusal to support Elasticsearch. <laughs> so there you go. 
this next one. Oh, oh. sorry, go ahead. Well done, logs.io, an easy button just to funnel data into the their platform. It'll either go really well for them or really bad. <laughs> you know, like how ready for scale are you, logs.io? Which is Elasticsearch under the hood. Yeah. So yeah. <laughs> so I don't think of it as funneling data into places. I think of it as funneling money into places. That's <laughs> I mean, that's what they're known. It's not cheap. Uh, an external available thing is the ephemeral OS disks for Azure VM support additional VM sizes. And now you can choose where to store ephemeral OS disks, either in VM temp disk, on VM cat, or in VM cache. This feature enables ephemeral OS disks to be created for all VMs which don't have the cache or insufficient cache, but have sufficient temp disks to host this ephemeral OS disk. Key features of this is there is no cost. It's faster to re-image for VMs and scale set instances and higher IOPS compared to persistent disks. And I just wait for somebody to enable this thinking they just got free storage and blow it away and lose all their data. Yes. It happens. Too often. Ephemeral is this word that, you know, I know what it means and most people know, but like somebody doesn't know what that means and they're just like, oh, it's just a disk. Like, you should yeah. say, don't put your yeah. data here, disk. It's the word for yeah. cheap. <laughs> yeah. Uh, next up is the Azure Data Explorer Insights is now generally available. This gives you comprehensive monitoring of your Azure Data Explorer clusters along with a unified view of your da- Azure Data Explorer performance, cache ingestions, and usage by Azure Data Explorer Insights built on the Azure Monitor Workbooks platform and allows you to get an at-scale perspective displaying a snapshot view of performance based on the cluster's main metrics, uh, drill-down analysis of particular Azure Data Explorer clusters, and customizable views. And this feature is just a report. So, yeah, thank you for that, Azure. I appreciate it. And now we get into Ignite. <laughs> so, uh, Wait, what? <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> yeah, that was something they, they announced. Sort of Drink a Gatorade yeah, or something. It was rough, I know. It gets better-ish. <laughs> Uh, first up is uh, announced uh, at Insight this week, major improvements across hybrid, multi-cloud, and edge computing capabilities for their platform. And that is with a ton of Azure Arc-enabled services, including Azure Arc on VMware, uh, Azure Arc-enabled machine learning capabilities, and Azure-enabled SQL managed instances. Uh, and these things have been enabled to allow you to support things like exciting as lifecycle management for VMware, uh, Azure ML models for on-prem, and now directly connected mode for SQL Server, so you can directly or indirectly connect your node to the Azure Arc management console. Uh, the Azure Virtual Desktop for Azure Stack HCI, or hyper-converged infrastructure, uh, allows customers to a modern wet cloud-based desktop and app virtualization solution on-premise for latency or regulatory reasons. And Microsoft Defender for multi-cloud now extends cloud security posture management and workload protection to AWS customers. And Azure Migration and Modernization Program, or AMP, now supports Azure Arc scenarios. So you can now ask them to tell you what all what I just said meant, because most people don't understand it either. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what you just said, but I just want to play Halo. <laughs> right. A lot of arcs. Uh, and then uh, you, after they <laughs> finished the arc stuff, they moved on to data features, which is always exciting. Data features include Synapse, uh, which makes my Synapse hurts. Uh, so first up is the Synapse link for Dataverse and preview of Azure Synapse link for SQL 2022. Azure Synapse Data Explorer is now part of Azure Synapse Unified Analytics Platform, so customers can easily access machine and user data to help improve business decisions. And then Azure Purview for Unified Data Governance uh, is now available to meet increased need for comprehensive data governance. Purview helps organizations achieve a complete understanding of their data whenever it is located. And apparently, since general availability a couple weeks ago, has helped customers discover over 57 billion data assets already. And all I'd say to that is, if you just had to look at your bill, you could have seen how many data assets you were already paying for. But, yeah, that's just you. That's just me. And then if you want to get SQL Server 2022 and you like to fill out a form and hope for the best, unlike our uh, earlier conversation about Aurora for SQL, uh, you can sign up for a preview to get the most flexible, scalable, and cloud connected SQL Server release yet. 
uh, in the gated preview, providing easier cloud integration and comes with the choice of flexibility across language and platform, including Linux, Windows, and Kubernetes, which is how I like to let run all my SQL Server workloads. Yeah. <laughs> that was a mouthful. It was. Do you think there's a Kubernetes controller for like SQL stored procedures? That would be a terrible idea. They probably would be a terrible, terrible idea. Don't do that. <laughs> yeah. Oh, no. Someone's I'm done. sure. Uh, and then, in a weird coincidence, uh, Facebook and Microsoft decided to talk about the metaverse. For all those who know what the metaverse is, you're, there's only 12 of you in the world, so congratulations. Uh, <laughs> this metaverse sounds a lot like Ready Player One, and I'm just too old for those things to get off my lawn as well. But uh, in the Microsoft world, the metaverse apparently consists of several things that I don't consider to be metaverse, but you know, here we go. So first up is the Dynamics 365 Connected Spaces, uh, now in preview. This product provides new perspectives on the way people move and interact with nearly any space from retail store to factory floor and how they manage health and safety in a hybrid work environment, uh, which I guess is second life for AI machine floors. I, I have no idea what that is. Or is it augmented reality? Um, yeah, it could be. Because right? that's what I read. Yeah, it could this. be. Yeah. And the next one is Mesh for MS Teams, which is bridging the communication methods and making human presence the ultimate connection. Now everyone in the meeting can be present without being physically present, using personalized avatars and immersive spaces that can be accessed from any device with no special equipment needed. Uh, and so I'm hoping that there's going to be an AI model for this so I can just build AI Justin and I don't have to actually be in any of these Teams meetings with my virtual avatar, because this sounds terrible. Just scan yourself naked and, uh, <laughs> and the tool will like, dress you appropriately for the meeting. Well, when you start talking about things like bridging communication methods, making human presence the ultimate connection, all I can think is there's a lot of porn use cases for this. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You can be present without being physically present using personalized avatars. Uh-huh. Okay. I think so. So there's that. And then uh, AI made an appearance as well with the new Azure OpenAI service, which initially will be available by invitation only. Uh, this will give customers access to OpenAI's powerful models in addition to the security, reliability, compliance, data privacy, and other enterprise-grade capabilities built into MS Azure. Uh, you know, if the AI is so smart, it should know that you already have invited me. That's all I'm saying. Uh, and hmm. then, of course, next up is building a trusted fact, a trust factor fabric. Uh, and this is uh, basically giving you Slack shared teams so you can share your Teams rooms with other companies' Teams rooms so you can now have all your customers uh, harassing you in your Teams rooms, which is super fun, just like you can do in Slack. And then chat with Teams allows users to chat seamlessly with people outside the work network as well, so you don't have to install Teams on your computer because no one wants Teams on their computer. And that's a lot of Teams. That's all I know. Let's go, team. Wow. Just don't try to talk from Teams to someone on Slack. Yeah, that won't work. There's no connector for that yet. That's that's probably next year's announcement. There is a connector, yeah. There is. There's some third-party tool, and it, but it's, it's yeah. very painful. Is it? I, I think we tried that yeah. with uh, HipChat back in the day, like making HipChat talk to Slack. It was not good. Yeah, that didn't work yeah. out well. And then uh, continuing the amazing story of Microsoft uh, Meta Universe is the Microsoft Loop, which is a new app that moves freely across apps, enabling teams to think, plan, and create together, which looked a lot like uh, OneNote meets Dynamics in some cool ways, and a little low-code there, too, I think. Uh, so there's a little low-code for you in Microsoft Loop. Uh, Microsoft Customer Experience Platform, which is a marketing solution that puts organizations in control of their customer data to personalize, automate, and orchestrate customer journeys, which just tells me they're now going to map my metaverse journey to give me more ads. So I appreciate that. Uh, Context IQ will, is a set of capabilities that will further integrate collaboration, sharing, and communication, the flow of work across Dynamics, Office 365, and Teams, and then several major updates for Azure Arc, which I already talked about in Ad Nauseum, and new best-of-breed security services for small business Defender for business. Which I guess that's great if you have a small business that needs a Defender that you didn't already have for free on your Windows box, but, you know, whatever. 
that's uh, that's it from Azure that I felt worthy of talking to you guys about. I'm a little nervous that the thing I'm most excited about is the team stuff. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that's not good. Uh, yeah. I mean, between the Facebook metaverse and the Microsoft metaverse, I was, I was actually thinking about this earlier. Like, who's going to win the race of the metaverse? Because, you know, everyone wants to build Ready Player One. Uh, and, you know, Facebook owns Oculus and they've got that and they have all my data and, you know, then they can get my brain as well. You know, they can just monetize the crap out of my profile. And then Microsoft, you know, has their augmented reality thing. So I, I was trying to figure out who would beat them there. But the, you know, I think the power of the Azure cloud, I think, actually gives them the advantage versus Facebook, in my opinion. But, uh, you know, Microsoft could also sell their AI to Facebook and then all bets are off. This just makes me want to develop stasis because it's going to be really ugly, the transition from wherever we are now to, like, the metaverse. Like, it just... Watching people almost get hit by cars, like looking at their phone and texting as they're walking across the street and that kind of thing. As far as like the metaverse, it's going to get so much worse before it gets better. <laughs> so I almost wanted to sleep yeah. through it. I mean, I'm sort of hoping that it gets regulated early versus letting social media kind of develop on its own and then turn into a toxic breeding ground of hate. Uh, so I'm hoping that it, you know it gets maybe <laughs> some guidelines before it's too late. But I, I'm not sure our, lo- our legislatures understand this at all. <laughs> So, no hope. No hope there. That's the that's, yeah. <laughs> first, we have to first we have to vote for people who are smart. Yeah. Every time there's a tech yeah. person at Congress and they're doing and they, I listen to the questions they're asked and I'm just like these are so softball questions and the it's, and the congressman so thinks they're just so smart and so smug about their question and the guy just basically is looking at them like you are the stupidest person in the world. <laughs> it's just, it's, uh, it's sad. But speaking of stupidest people in the world, uh, let's go to the lightning round, Peter. <laughs> see what dumb jokes we can come up with tonight oh i thought you were making a reference to the host no, of no, the no, lightning no, no never never <laughs> all right let's start with a public preview announcement you can now make multiple backups per day for azure thank you for getting a dropbox feature that's been around for 12 years now you know multiple backups of files who would have thought it like every time it, every time it changes it's crazy. I know, so weird right who, who would want that? <laughs> also in public preview, a very expensive bill for Azure files. And no mention of the word versioning. All right. So uh, Google has got a little video walkthrough so that you could set up a multiplayer game server with Google Cloud. Which, of course, uses spot VMs. So you can be super frustrated when your Minecraft server dies 30 seconds after launch. Oh. Uh. <laughs> And AWS Transit Gateway Network Manager launches new APIs to simplify network and route analysis in your global network. So a network manager got APIs to simplify network management? Huh. Who would have known? I don't think simplify means what they think it means. <laughs> no. Typically, typically in yeah. AWS parlance, <laughs> simplify means made more complicated and much less efficient. <laughs> yes. And Amazon EKS managed node groups adds native support for Bottle Rocket. And if you think you're smart enough to run Bottle Rocket and not just let Amazon do it for you, you have a, you have a Bottle Rocket coming to your head. <laughs> I am not one of those people. Eh. I know I'm it's not a, smart It's enough. a slimmed down OS. What can be hard about it? You don't have to do anything. I mean, just, just getting thing. it built is not easy. <laughs> so, <laughs> so if you do anything, I don't know about that, but... Uh, 
Amazon Text Track launches TIFF support and adds asynchronous support for receipts and invoices process. Flashback to the GM meeting where he said, We're not making enough money on Text Direct. How can we increase the revenue coming into the Text Direct product? And someone says, Well, we could just enable TIFF support so we could pull more data over the S3 connection because TIFFs are 3,000 gigabytes for the smallest image ever. And that's how Text Direct just grew their revenue 300%. Are you complaining about the Compression algorithms. I sure am. (laughs) All right. It's war. Gloves are off. Introducing Amazon EC2 spot placement score. I think you read that wrong. It's EC2 spot placement score. Score! (laughs) Oh, nice. (laughs) Nice. Boom goes the dynamite. Uh, Amazon DevOps Guru increases coverage of Amazon EKS metrics and adds metric view by plus. So when they first launched this, I thought they meant Guru, like Shaman and Guru, who's really smart. And then I realized it's just the Love Guru played by Michael Myers. This isn't that great of a product. Mm, that's too bad. So wait, is like it's it's going to tell me my application is full of security problems. It's going to tell me that my syntax is all inconsistent. It's going to tell me that basically I'm a terrible coder. And then it's going to tell me that when it's in runtime, that it also sucks. Yeah. And you're going to pay for that capability too, which is great. Yes. Yeah. Cool. Well, Azure trusted launch for virtual machines is now generally available. I mean, I trust nothing in the Azure space. So good luck to all of you who trust this launch. Is it? Uh, and Yeah. Very difficult to keep track of whether we're supposed to be trusting or zero trusting. Speaking of which, <laughs> Google announces zero trust workload security with GKE Traffic Director, which is now generally available. Anytime you can direct all your traffic anywhere in the world without any trust, it's always a bad day. To trust or not to trust, Google now allows you to quickly, easily, and affordably back up the data that you don't trust with BigQuery table snapshots. But is it multiple times per day? Because if not, I don't want it. I want the Azure thing. But if this is multiple times a day or every minute, I'll take it. So I need that differentiation between Google and Azure to make the decision. Log shipping. That's all I can say with BigQuery. Log right. ship. Log ship. More public previews. Near real-time analytics for telemetry, time series, and log data on Azure Synapse. And when you see how much you paid for this and how badly it performs, your synapses will fry. and we're going to wrap it up with AWS Secrets Manager increases secrets limits to 500,000 per account the secret is he just burned a whole crap ton of money (laughs) on this feature (laughs) all I can think of is that the the Lord of the Rings meme like keep your secrets I mean it's also also interesting that the US government only has 500,000 secrets to keep I mean, between them and MI6, you think it'd be a lot more than that. Now all they got to do is uh, increase KMS to 500,000 keys per account. We all set. So then you can encrypt each secret with a different key. What could go wrong? It's great. Yeah, exactly. Absolutely nothing. Uh, who's going to win it? I guess it's got to be uh, Score! <laughs> For our friend, nice. Ryan. Look at that, Ryan. You're coming right on top of Jonathan. You just tied him up. Strong. Yeah. I mean, we, there's still yeah. enough weeks you could win this. What? What? So this is what's going to happen. I'm going to start actually trying, which means I will be so much less funny. And then... Yeah, then you'll not have a chance. <laughs> I mean, I don't know if I ever really... I'm ever really trying. <laughs> just 
Yeah. What did one DevOps engineer say to the other DevOps engineer? <laughs> yeah, so oh, no. there's eight weeks left in the year. So there's there's eight points left for grabs, which means that uh, you know you have a chance. Mm, everybody, everybody has a chance. So there you go. He's kept it competitive. That's how it works. Well, things coming up in the cloud world once again. State of FinOps uh, Mini Summit is November 18th. Uh, if you want to know what that is, go listen to the episode with uh, Rob, who guested two weeks ago. Uh, he explained it much better than I did. We should probably just cut that audio out and just paste it right here, Jonathan. That way I don't have to explain it. <laughs> and then Azure has announced Infrastructure as a Service Day. Learn to increase agility and resilience of your infrastructure. No, they did not say security of your infrastructure, just the agility and resiliency. So do keep that in mind if you're attending on November 17th. And then, of course, reInvent is coming up very quickly, November 29th through December 3rd in Viva Las Vegas. Uh, it's not that far away, guys. It's only f- three weeks. <laughs> and then it's Thanksgiving, and then we're all in Vegas if you're going to Vegas, uh, which I don't know if you are or not. Uh, I'll be there. I'll be there Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. I'll be there. You will be there. I will be at Top Golf. I'm sure at least once or twice. Uh, yeah. And uh, yeah, so it's going to be a fun week. Uh, looking forward to that. We will do predictions uh, in two weeks, guys. We'll record them on the 17th for publishing the week of Thanksgiving. So do get your predictions in for reInvent. Think about it now before it's too late. And that is it for another fantastic week in the cloud. Thanks, guys. See you later. Good night. Bye, everybody. And that is the week in the cloud. We'd like to thank our sponsors, Foghorn Consulting and Jump Cloud. Check out our website, the home of the Cloud Pod, where you can join our newsletter, Slack team, and send feedback or ask questions at thecloudpod.net or tweet us with the hashtag thecloudpod. Cloud Pod.